Welcome to the Viscast. I'm your host, Joshua Viss. And in this episode, my father Marlon and I focus on tragedy, loss, and pain. So we begin with some discussion of the book of Job and how we think that handles those issues and God's role in them well or not. And then I spend some time unpacking my story of pain and loss and beauty and everything. We appreciate you tuning in and we hope you find it helpful. So we want to begin with a quote from Reiner Rilke, an Austrian, I believe Austrian poet. And it's probably one some of you have heard before, pretty well known, uh, but we think it's there's some real uh, wisdom here and wisdom that pertains quite particularly to what we want to talk about in this podcast. I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually without even noticing it, live your way into the answer. We've been um, struggling with, over the past few weeks, this question of the sufferings and losses and difficulties of life and how they fit into the good life in some ways. And to do that, we've looked at a couple of things. There's a book by Susan Cain called Bittersweet that is really quite helpful on this particular subject. And then we also took a look at the book of Job from the Old Testament, which is at least taking a crack at this problem. And that is the problem of suffering. Particularly, it's concerning itself with the problem of the suffering of, it would say, the innocent or the blameless so sort of undeserved suffering, if you will. So yeah, what you, you wanted to say some things about the book of Job? Well, let me kind of begin with um, something a good friend, probably one of my closest friends in life, said just the other day to, to Sally, that would be my wife, Joshua's mother, this friend lost their son 20 years ago now. He died in a motorcycle accident. And I asked Sally to ask her, you know, what's happening with you right now, 20 years later? What's happening with you in your loss, in your grief, and the suffering that you've gone through for years now? And she said this, it's unfinished. And I've been thinking about that ever since. And I think when I think about the book of Job, that's how I feel about the book of Job. It's really unfinished. Uh, it doesn't resolve anything for me. It raises more questions than it answers. And it's intended to do that, I think. In the introduction to the Jewish Study Bible, the uh, gentleman who wrote that, Edward Greenstein, talks about 
the different ways the book of Job has been interpreted traditionally through the centuries by Christians. Job is seen as the uh, righteous sufferer who stays loyal to God, and he's also seen as a type of Christ. But here's what I think is, and is always, it seems to be the case, in Judaism, there's just lots of disagreement, which fits with the book of Job, because the book of Job is filled with disagreements. Uh, My study and reading of the book of Job over these last weeks, and I'm at the end of it, and for me, it's it's still unfinished. Mm -hmm. The only piece of Job that is of interest to me, meaning that I think it is possibly helpful, is the character of Job and his unwillingness to accept these very uh, glib answers from his friends in in the dialogues, which is the main portion of, of the book. And the words from the friends are so glib and ridiculous as if to be insulting, frankly. Job's insulted by them. I'm insulted by them. I think anybody who has suffered and is willing to let themselves be insulted by a biblical text would be insulted by them. Even, and this is maybe the only positive thing I could find from God in the book, is God does not praise the friends in the end, thankfully. Now, God's response is very troubling and problematic, but God doesn't praise Job's friends Their explanations are all some iteration of something you've heard before, like God is testing you, or you did something wrong to anger the deity and are being punished for it. It's a test, like Abraham with Isaac, right? except in Job's case, the sons and the daughters and all of them weren't spared. And this is a point Job makes when one of his friends says, you know, this is a test. And another one is like, you're being punished for something you did. Job's answer is nobody deserves this much punishment. And I think one of the beautiful things about this book is the fact that all these traditional answers to the problem of suffering, the problem of pain, each and every one of them is um, confronted and uh, rebuked by Job. By Job. Every single one of them. And I find that heartening because... Some of the same things are happening in our faith tradition, where there are those who are challenging um, what has always been considered to be the way we ought to look at things. So I find Job heartening in in that sense. The the one place Job doesn't go that now in the modern context we do go is to take God out of the picture altogether, which solves the problem. Right, So if you say there is no God, then the problem of suffering disappears. And that's a really, for many, a radical move. But that is, that's a modern move. It's not really represented anywhere in the Bible. The possibility that there just isn't a God that we need to reconcile to our suffering. And that's a modern phenomenon that is very alive and well in our context. And for good reason, you know. We all look at life and think it's not clear at all. In fact, it's much more clear that this isn't being run by anyone towards any particular end. Now, the book of Job is able to say, 
or the character of Job, only really the character of Job, I would say, is willing to say, well, it doesn't work in the way we would like it to, quote unquote, like it to. I'm not even convinced if we would like it if it did work the way we wanted, meaning just the guilty were punished and the innocent were never punished and lived some sort of lives with no suffering and no hardship, right? They're willing to consider that as untrue. Job is. But they're not willing to consider the possibility that the whole way they're framing it is wrong. That is, that there should be some deity, and you know, in the case of the Hebrew Bible, this is the God of the Israelites, controlling everything. That, I think, is taken almost for granted in the book. Somebody's in charge of this. So how do we explain these things that are happening with our unquestionable notion that somebody's in charge, right? In our context, one of the things we're moving to is the possibility that nobody's in charge of it all, right? And that's something the book of Job can't right. really can't imagine. Right. Well, and not just in their context, but in orthodox, traditional, fundamental Christianity, there's there's no consideration of that either. And, I mean, even though millions of people, probably everybody sitting in a church service on a Sunday morning is at some time or another in their life wondering that basic thing, is there a God? And if there is a God, what kind of God is there? And this is the thing that I'm encouraged by is that more and more of us are charging straight ahead, raising these questions, raising these issues, and attempting to reimagine what it could look like to view God differently than the way we've always had to view him. And I mean had to view him. I appreciate the book of Job. I appreciate the fact that conventional wisdom is presented as the answer to this most difficult question, and Job pushes back on it. And I appreciate the fact that Job is honest about his suffering, and he's challenging God. I appreciate that. I can find in the character of Job somebody I can relate to, embrace even. Yeah. It's a, it's a tough one. My impulse is on this book right now, anyway, are not terribly positive, mainly because the conception of God in it is just so thoroughly bad. Job has this odd beginning and ending, which doesn't really fit well with the middle of the book, meaning at the beginning you have this like narrative section and there's this being called the adversary, which we sometimes get translated as Satan because it is in the Hebrew Hasatan. And he, you know, this adversary comes before God and just kind of gets questioned by God. And God says, yeah, go ahead and see. You know, Job's great. You can do whatever you want with him. And uh, he won't turn against me, basically. And that's on the front end and the back end. And the back end, it's like, yep, you didn't really turn against me, so I'm going to give you back all the things that uh, the adversary took from you. And it, it's absurd, that part of it, the front and the back. It's an absurd story. Only lesson it can teach for me is the absurdity of a God that is like that, meaning ultimately very narcissistic. 
like just interested in talking about the great allegiance shown to him by this one particular character named Job and his family, and willing to just play with Job and his life just to kind of see what happens, right? Yeah, it's just ugly at the worst. At the best, it's absurd and so absurd that you wonder even if the author of it was even serious about this portrayal of God. So that speaks to that piece of it. And then in the dialogues, God comes in, chapter 38, God finally speaks, and all that happens in God's dialogues really is God asserting how powerful and sovereign he is. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. At the end of the, at the, end of the book, um, it's really abuse. In my opinion, God is abusing Job, and we have a hard time saying anything negative about God anyway, but this God is abusive. And not only that, but even the test. I mean, I know it's just a story. There's no Job. Yeah, of course. It's not. just a story. But whatever this story is trying to say, if it's trying to say something good about God, it doesn't. And uh, I don't know what the author is trying to do or the writers and the editors. I don't really know. How would we know? We don't know. But if that particular writer was um, trying to say something about God that we could find comforting, he missed that mark entirely. So I want to talk about that a little bit. But let me first say that the reason I find this important, that we be having discussions like this, I'm a care pastor, part-time. I visit a lot of older people, and I love them. I've been doing this now for about three and a half years at the same place. These people are friends, people I care about, people I love, people I, I cry over when they die. Just this week, I had four different encounters with people who were, in one way or another, one just said it right out, were mad at God. One was mad at God because her daughter died. Her daughter's 57. She had cancer. This is her only daughter. This woman's 87, 88 years old. And she could not understand how God could take her daughter and not her. And so the notion she has is that God did this. So that's one. The second is the same exact thing. Uh, A woman lost one daughter, has another daughter, who's dying, and she herself has heart difficulties, part and parcel of this stress. And her friend is the one who said to me, I'm mad at God. And I said, why are you mad at God? She said, how could they allow a good person like Mary to suffer like this? I just said, God doesn't, God doesn't kill people. That's not the God I, I see. God doesn't kill people. God heals people. God comforts people. There's this view that we've been raised with that God is in control of all things. And therefore, if something like this happens, we question God. Brian McLaren says it's like God has already made a movie. It's all done. And now he's just playing this movie out, right? I just feel bad for God, (laughs) to be honest. If there's a God, I feel badly for him, for what we've done. So now, I mean, you have a story about 
how you might view God movement in your own life or no movement. Mm-hmm. I don't know that there's a uh, message about necessarily who God is in this story, but I'll tell it and we can think about that. What happened was in, I think it was 2018, there was a church that was a supporting church of mine, no longer a supporting church. It was First Granville and a good friend uh, of yours and also became a friend of mine, Bud Pratt, was the pastor there. And they're, um, they are a, a church, you know, with a heart for mission. And they were having multiple missionaries come and share. I, I don't remember how long they gave us. It was short, five to ten minutes. But they prompted us with some questions. And the question they prompt was, in what ways did God prepare you to be a missionary before you started your work? How have you seen him reaffirm that calling since that time? And how can we look for that calling in our own lives? And I knew then what they were looking for. But I also had this experience. So this was 2018. I was probably still a bit in the midst of it, but nearing the end of a journey to some degree that just, I couldn't bring myself to tell them the kind of story I knew they wanted to hear. So instead, I chose to just tell them the story as it was. This is that story in a nutshell. In 2008, I was living in North Carolina. I had recently finished my comprehensive exams. So I was like sort of two-thirds through my doctoral program. And um, there was a colleague of mine. His name was David Knauert. But he was, I think, two years ahead of me, maybe three. So he, I think he had finished. He just had finished his dissertation quite recently. And he was a real active person. And he was out running. He was in his 30s at this point, early 30s, maybe 35. And he was out running and he collapsed and died. Leaving behind four kids and his wife, his partner. I didn't know him that well, but I knew him because of the program. And we had talked, and he had told me about how he and his family were going to be moving to Brazil, and he was going to be teaching at a Methodist university, and it was the Peace USA, Presbyterian Church USA, that was sending him. And I just thought, what a cool opportunity, something I had never even thought about, that is going overseas. It was not something I had ever considered. You know, once he said that, I thought, well, that's really interesting. Well... Not long after, I want to say six months later, that job was open and I applied for it and I got it along with my wife at the time, Kim and our daughter, Mahalia. We found out when we interviewed for the job that the reason they needed a new person was because the person who had been there for 22 years previous to hiring David, who had had died. Archibald was his name, uh, but he had cancer. So we went to Brazil, and it was a transformative time of my life. I finished my dissertation while I was there. Um, Really, the kernel of the idea was hatched there for the dissertation, something that was really difficult. Made, you know, lifelong and life-altering friendships. My journey as a person 
progressed in certain ways um, that I, I don't think it would have outside of going to Brazil. While I was there, the Old Testament professor, really well-known throughout Brazil and really beloved by students, died. His name was Milton Schwantes. It was a big loss uh, for them. Eventually, we left Brazil early. That is, Kim and Mahalia and I, uh, because our marriage was not doing well. Our second daughter had been born in Brazil a year earlier. So when I left Brazil and came home, I started the process of separation and divorce, which was, as all divorces are, extremely painful and extremely difficult for everybody involved. I was unemployed. I didn't have a place to live. I was living with you guys. I was applying for jobs right and left. No luck. Well, just as our divorce is finalizing, I was offered an opportunity to go teach at Central College in Iowa. And I had no bites anywhere up to this point. So I, you know, very reluctantly and with a lot of internal strife, chose to take that job, which meant what I was going to be doing was every two weeks. I was driving home on a Friday, driving here to Holland from Pella, seven-hour drive, and then driving back on Sunday evening. And that was how much I got to see my girls for two school years. The summer in between, lived at home, lived with you guys to be with them as much as I could. And um, constantly worried about what effect this was having on my relationship with my daughters. Um, just so much guilt and shame attached to that. But not really having another obvious path towards a future, a career. <laughs> In 2016, I remember packing up the uh, U-Haul, driving out of Pella, and at some point we hit like a stop sign and I just, I broke down crying. Nicole was with me at this point, so I wasn't alone. And it was just all the shame and the guilt just came crashing. No, it didn't. It didn't come crashing. It came up, right, from my body. And it just said, enough already, you know, this needs to come out. And then in 2016, we basically tried out this... <laughs> 2015, I don't even remember when we started trying to do this. Like, could we orchestrate this possibility of you leaving your job so that I could have that job, then live here close to my girls? That was super difficult and painful and weird. And I don't even, I mean, so many different difficult things about it. Ultimately, ending in me getting the job, this job that they were asking me about, right? In the midst of that, in 2012, I, I remember we were on our way to Iowa. So this is right in the midst of it, right? David Knauer, oh, yeah. his oldest son, committed suicide. You know, there were lots of very painful moments throughout this multi-year journey that I'm talking about. Well, it's a 10-year journey if you're talking about when David died to when I'm sitting in front of that congregation in 2018. And when I thought about what they were asking me about what I had just been through over the past 10 years, I didn't know how to do anything else but just tell this story. 
so then I'm, I tell this whole story to this congregation of people and I say, that's how I got here. <laughs> I'm unwilling to make the God the author of that story, that those people who died, of which there are four in that story, my ex-wife, Kim, I'm, I'm unwilling to make her and our relationship and the, I don't know what word I want to use for what happened to our relationship, but just, the, the disintegration of it, let's say. I'm not willing to make any of those events like pawns in this bigger story of my life or anybody's life. I, I can't place God in that story, I, I, I'm un, and I'm unwilling to do so. It offends me, and it offends those people and their memory and their suffering. Now, I'll tell you, like, that wasn't what they wanted to hear, right? Right. right. There was a lot of tension in the room. Yeah. You know, it's the pin drop moment. Maybe people don't like what you're saying, but they sure as hell are listening. Right. And they're taking you seriously. Yes, they are. When I found Susan Cain's work, right, and some other people along the way, you know, a lot of what we've been doing over the last year and still processing, but before that, it's been in some ways always leading in this direction of, in the poem, Rilke says, you know, and the point is to live everything. Yeah. And that's the thing that the bittersweet book is suggesting. Not only that, like, what else are we supposed to do but to live everything? I think you could just make that point, and it's enough. But she's going further than that by saying the painful aspects of life, first of all, cannot be done away with and will not be done away with. Second of all, it's actually in those moments where great depth and meaning can be found and connection to other people can be found. If there's one thing we all experience as human beings, not equally, but we all experience it, it's suffering, loss, and pain. Yeah, yeah. It's baked into reality. Yeah, yeah. And we all know that. We all, of course, want to feel safe. Right. There's also a part of us that knows that just life doesn't give you safety. There's just, it's not a part of the system. You know, so pain connects you. And the other thing she says in Bittersweet, you do have the option. And it's going to be harder for some people and it's not going to work for everybody. But you, you do have an option and it's a good one. And that is to take your pain and turn it into a creative offering of beauty to the world. Yeah, yeah. which is what poets and musicians and playwrights right. all do, and preachers who do it well. I was listening to a comedian. I wish I could remember her name. She's been doing stand-up comedy for over 20 years, but she said it took me 20 years to find an audience or to have the audience find me. She said... Uh, young women in particular will come to her shows and afterwards want to embrace her because what they found in her was a comedian who was funny, but she was touching on those things that were painful for women. You know, she's making beauty out of that which is painful for women by turning it into an art form. 
A communal art form, a shared art yeah, form. Yeah, that's right. Know? But so, it doesn't have to be shared, actually. No, that's you, right. If you journal or you sketch or... you or, make bread. I mean, I make bread. I make sourdough bread. I can get emotional about that. I do it because it's healing for me. It's one of the ways I can turn some of my internal stuff into a... Cre- it's creative. Making sourdough bread's an art. I'm just saying that... You know, these are mon- seem like mundane things. They're us taking our internals and doing creative stuff out of it. And what you did that day was a gift to the people that were there, and there were some who received it and others who couldn't. The funny part is I remember seeing Bud, the pastor, and, like, I'm talking minutes before I went up there, I was like, hey, man, this one's going to be a little bit tough. Be ready. <laughs> And he's like, that's okay. I, I know it's going to be. And I was like, no, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> right. Because that w- it didn't end there. I, I said right. some hard things about the Bible and I said some other hard things, things I just that were on my heart. And But it was a little bit of an ambush. But, you know, what they did afterwards is a few people came up to me and thanked me. A young woman, uh, a man and his wife. I think that was it. And then everybody else ignored me. Yeah, of course. Because they didn't know what else to do with you. I, I didn't take it as um, being mean to me. For many, it's just too much reality. Yeah, I think that's right. It's an overwhelming amount of yeah. realism, you know, almost. Right. Brian McLaren on his uh, podcast, Learning How to See, just recently did one on actions, beliefs, and God's intervention. Talked about the loss of his brother who committed suicide at the age of 24, I think. I just thought he did a wonderful job of sharing. And we might see if we can add this into the podcast. I'll see if we can do that. We just passed the 15-year anniversary of, of losing my brother to suicide, and he was a pastor when he took his own life. And I was a pastor. And um, six months later to the day, my mother, who was a pastor, died from brain cancer that we didn't know that she had. And so as I took my own personal journey with grief, there were hundreds, thousands of people who knew my family as pastors. And one of the hardest things I had to navigate was person after person after person coming to me and trying to give me what they thought was comfort to say, well, well, maybe, you know, maybe you're your brother took his life and God let that happen because it would prevent him from doing something down the road that would cause him to lose his salvation. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe God did this so it could be a lesson. And and what I also started to realize was I was both the person experiencing the loss, but I was still a pastor. So people were actually coming to me for pastoral care to help to ask me to help them reconcile the loss of my mom and my brother because they were such profound spiritual guides in their life. And they kept trying on all these goofy theologies. I felt like I was in the book of Job with Job's comforters, like, let me try this reason on because this reason makes me feel safe. And it was so painful and so infuriating. And the crazy thing was, eventually, it brought me to a place where I actually started to feel deep compassion. Because I realized what was happening is these people were theologizing as a means of grieving. Because I was also studying grief and trauma. I still, uh, you know, a, a certified grief and trauma counselor at this point. And, and 
you know, grief theory has gone way beyond the five stages of grief, but there's still something there. If you know them, there's denial and there's anger and there's bargaining. And bargaining is when we try on ideas to make them fit. And I began to realize that most of the religion that I knew and experienced was the bargaining stage of grieving dressed up as religion. It was just people trying to find beliefs that would make them feel safe. And so I say all that to say, I relate to this listener in the sense that I am afraid of some spiritual communities because I don't want to be the victim of their attempts to make themselves feel safe in the universe. And yet I have so much compassion for them because when I look at it through that lens, it softens my heart. And I go, dear God, we're just trying to we're just trying to create a story that lets us find ourselves uh, protected from the crazy things that can happen in life. What we're trying to do is still processing. And I don't know if we're going to succeed or not, but we're going to try. Is create a space where you can tell this story and others can tell their same stories of, of loss and pain. And we can take our masks off because you can't do that in church. What you discovered is church is not a safe place to take off your mask. And we all know this is true. And pastors really try hard. Mm -hmm. Church is not a safe place to take off your mask. When you do, some people recognize it as a gift and other people see it as a threat because they cannot connect joy and pain. Mm -hmm. I lived that stuff through with you too and saw your pain. I still see it come out. I was talking at the pool the other day. We we don't have a pool, but we live in a uh, condo association that does. And Mahalia, Josh's oldest daughter, 15-year-old daughter, was there. And I said, oh, I just listened to the song out of Barbie. What was I made for, Billy what was Eilish? I, what was I made for? And Mahalia said, oh, Dad cried when he heard that song. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah, I bet he did. Yeah, it's a great bittersweet song. Yeah. A song of longing. Yeah. And the, and the cool thing about the song, because it touches on this, and it's also one of the key points in the movie, is that, you know, because Barbie is a, a doll. And in the movie, part of the struggle is Barbie has this desire to be real. What does she want from reality? Yeah. Because right. what does she already have? Right. Perfection. Perfect life. That's right. And she consents. She goes to the real world in the film. And it's hard because the real world's not a safe place for women. Yeah. But she also notices in the real world there's something precious about reality. And what you get to do in the real world that you don't get to do in the Barbie world is feel. Yeah, that's really good. If you're going to feel, yeah, you're going to feel it all, the good and the bad. And what she is grasping at in the film is that that actually earth is a better place a more profound a deeper place than heaven than barbie land which is heaven which is heaven in a lot of our conceptions of it the film is making this profound point to be human is a great great privilege that so few people that could exist will exist (laughs) we get to live this experiment in all of its pain and all of its joy and that that's a privilege i just thought of the uh theater production one of the classics our town where the young girl who dies young 
and comes back. At one point she says, um, do you realize how good life is while you're living it? Well, I want to kind of move us toward conclusion. And I'm going to talk about something McLaren said in his podcast about C.S. Lewis. And then I want to throw it over to you towards the end of the podcast um, after they've talked about a God who's not controlling, a God who is not micromanaging, that a God is more in the sustaining business than he is in the protecting business. When we're done, we have as many questions as we do answers about how to live well. One thing McLaren said that I really appreciated, he said, you know, look, for some people, there's great comfort in believing that God is in control. And he's saying, I don't want to take that away from people to somehow try and change the way they view the world or the way they view God. That just seems disrespectful to me. I don't have any desire to change anybody else's mind about these things. I just want there to be a place where I can disagree because I don't agree with that. I don't believe that God micromanages. I don't believe that God is in control. I don't believe God is on the throne here on earth. I've preached that and not been invited back after I did. And I understand that. People want God on the throne. I, I don't. I don't want that. I agree with Louis Smeads who was a Christian reform writer who said, God gave us the kind of world we want to live in, a world where random things happen and where we have choices and where God is not in control. I just want the rest of us who, as Susan Cain says, are uh, allergic to dogma and who have questions and doubts about all of it, want a place where you can do that. C.S. Lewis, one of the great Christian writers ever, right? And one of the books he wrote was The Problem of Pain. And in it, C.S. Lewis basically trots out all of the mimes you find in Job. He has all these answers. After he wrote the book The Problem of Pain, he gets married. She has cancer. And he sits by her bed while she dies a horribly painful death. And then he writes a new book called The Grief Observed. And in it, he says, and I'm loosely quoting, all the things I've written about pain have only served to cause me more pain. In other words, trying to find a logical, reasonable, God-blessed purpose in my wife's horrible death is only causing me more pain. Again, if we, could, if we can begin to help people see that there's freedom in realizing we don't have a God who micromanages. We don't have a God who's controlling. We don't have a God who's that narcissistic that everything has to be pointed to him all the time. Right. Or you that, have to, or if, you know, if you just fear God properly, God right. won't punish you. That's right. That's right. It comes down to fearing God. You know, this is where I want to wrap up to say, I'm feeling the best I've felt in my whole life about all these things. Part of the reason that is, Josh, is I lived your story with you. I got into drinking issues because of what was happening. Mm -hmm. You know that. You saw it. Mm -hmm. That was my bypass right. for a while. Yeah. You know, but coming out the other side, I'm not going to say I'm 
glad this all happened, but we have Nicole in our life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what a blessing she is. Mm-hmm. Kim is remarried. That's right. Sam's a good man. He is He's a good, good man. to them. And yep. Sam's father. So Mahalia's step-grandfather. He comes. He makes a point of coming to Mahalia's, yeah, some of Mahalia's things and supporting her. It's beautiful. Susan Cain calls that an insane beauty. Yeah. We have to say, though, Josh, this is really important. My friend who lost her son would need me to say that we're not minimizing anybody's pain. Mm -mm. We're not trying to say what Job's friends say is this pain came for a good reason. We don't believe that. But what Susan Cain is saying, if I'm hearing her right, is these are moments that we can find beauty or even create beauty Mm -hmm. out of these moments. Yeah, we don't have to understand what happened or why it happened. Right. We don't have to moralize any of our pain. It's just pain. Yeah. Taking it out of the moral dimension helps tremendously. So the, the Cleveland Clinic video is called Empathy. It's really excellent. Look for it on YouTube. You'll find it, and I think you'll appreciate it. And it connects with this quote that I want to end with from, from Susan Cain about bittersweetness. She says, bittersweetness shows us how to respond to pain by acknowledging it and attempting to turn it into art the way the musicians do or healing or innovation or anything else that nourishes the soul. If we don't transform our sorrows and longings, we can end up inflicting them on others via abuse, domination, and neglect. But if we realize that all humans know or will know loss and suffering we can turn toward each other thanks so much for tuning in to the biscast we'll be back soon with another episode be well everyone <laughs>